welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. And turn to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Our text for the morning is Daniel chapter 7. And if you use the Pew Bible, this text is found on page 828 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. As you're turning there, let me say a few words to set the context for this text. If we could somehow rather miraculously transport ourselves back to the first century there in Jerusalem and ask those earliest Christians what was the most influential, what was the most definitive text from the Bible for them. And of course the Bible for them was what we call the Old Testament. That was the only Bible they would have had uh, in the time of Jesus and right after the time of Jesus. I wonder what their response would be. If I were to go out on the street here and ask Christian people, what is the most significant Old Testament passage to the earliest Christians? They may would say perhaps the creation stories in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Particularly in this culture because there seems to be uh, quite an appreciation for the creation accounts. There seems to be quite an appreciation for a theology of creation, though there doesn't seem to be much of an appreciation any longer for a theology of redemption. So many people might say Genesis 1 and 2 in those creation stories would be the most important text from the Bible to those earliest Christians, not by far. Perhaps if I were to ask some people in our age what would be the most definitive text from the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, for those earliest Christians, they might, with a great degree of reflection, be able to say the books of Deuteronomy, Psalms, and the prophecy of Isaiah. And that would be a little closer to the truth, I think, because as you probably know, if you look at the Gospels and listen to the preaching of Jesus in the Gospels, The three books he quoted from the most often were the books of Deuteronomy and the Psalms and the prophecy of Isaiah. It would serve as well to pay more attention to those three books of the Hebrew Bible. But I think if you could transport yourself, if we could transport ourselves back to the first century there in Jerusalem to the to the earliest Christians and ask them what is the most significant text from the Bible, the Old Testament, regarding their understanding of Jesus Christ, I think they would almost certainly answer the book of Daniel, and particularly what we call the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And I think a lot of Christians are completely unaware of the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, and it is so formative in early Christian theology, it is so formative behind the ministry of Jesus, behind much of the writings that would become the Christian Bible, what we call the New Testament. We know 
that the book of Daniel was very, very popular among Jews in Jesus' day. We know that for a lot of different reasons, because of some of the other writings of Jewish people there in the first century. For instance, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find eight copies of the book of Daniel. If there had been a New York Times bestseller list there in Jerusalem of the first century, the book of Daniel would have been right at the top. We know that a lot of Jews were reading the book of Daniel fervently because if you remember the book of Daniel, it, it is written, it comes from a period about 600 years before the time of Jesus. It's said in a period about 600 years before the time of Jesus when the Jewish people were under foreign occupation. They were under occupation by the Seleucid Greeks. So, of course, in Jesus' day, when they are again under foreign occupation by the Romans, they would find a great degree of comfort from the book of Daniel in the Hebrew Bible. Because the book of Daniel, in many different ways, shows that God's rule is preeminent. God's rule certainly will prevail in human history. And that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven will prevail in human history and will come to replace all the other kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of the Seleucid Greeks in Daniel's day, the kingdom of the Romans in Jesus' day. God and God's will certainly will prevail in human history. So the book of Daniel was very popular in Jesus' day and I think particularly chapter 7 was used by Jesus and by many of the early Christians to help the earliest Christians understand Christian theology, particularly to help the earliest Christians understand who we believe Jesus Christ to be. So, with that background, look at Daniel chapter 7. And hopefully as I read through this, you'll see how powerful this text was in early Christianity and how powerful this text should be still yet today to the people called Christian. What we find here in Daniel 7 is the prophet Daniel relating a vision. And it's a vision that we need to remind ourselves of, particularly on Christ the King Sunday. So I'll begin reading at verse 9 of chapter 7. Daniel is writing and Daniel says, As I watched thrones were set in place. And an ancient one took his throne. You probably have a note there in your Bible that says the, the Aramaic behind the text for the translation ancient one really is the ancient of days. So an ancient one, the ancient of days, took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. We know this to be a representation of God. The Ancient One, the Ancient of Days. And it says here in Daniel 7, 9, His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. Perhaps we remember the New Testament book of Hebrews where the author says, Our God is a consuming fire. Again, a representation of God. Then verse 10, A stream of fire issued and flowed out from God's presence. That may perhaps be a reference to what we know as the Holy Spirit, the flame of God 
that's pouring forth from the throne, still yet pouring forth today. You notice in the United Methodist symbol, there is a cross and a flame. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued and flowed out of his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. So here's a representation of God. Here's the judgment. Here are the books of life being open. As a matter of fact, in the Eastern Church, Greek Orthodoxy and Eastern Orthodoxy today, Christ the King Sunday is actually referred to as Judgment Sunday in their church calendar. Verse 11 is almost a parenthetical statement because verse 11 takes you back into human history as it was being written in Daniel's day. And it says, I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. So here's a horn speaking arrogant words. It's a beast. For those of you that are journeying through the book of Revelation with me, you probably are hearing an echo of the book of Revelation here, or more appropriately, Revelation will echo this. A horn is a symbol for power in biblical literature. So here's a person of power who has arrogant words, who's making a lot of noise, even referenced as a beast, but who will eventually be put to death and his body destroyed and given over to be burned in the fire. So throughout Christian history, this has become an image for those people, particularly those leaders who set themselves against the will of God. Those anti-God, anti-Christ leaders that have come over and over and over again throughout Christian history. And this image that you see being portrayed here in Daniel is that arrogant horn, those arrogant horns, those beasts will eventually be destroyed. Verse 12, as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken from them, taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So the people who followed the beast, the people who follow those leaders that are anti-God, those leaders that are anti-Christ, they may prevail for a while, for a season and a time. But eventually, they too will be destroyed. Verse 13 takes us back to the vision. And verse 13 presents Jesus Christ as king to us through Old Testament language. Verse 13 as I watched, Daniel says, in the night visions, in the dreams or visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient One and was presented before him. So here is a heavenly vision. Here is a very special person coming to God, the Ancient of Days, being presented. And it says that this one being presented is one like a human being, is how the translation in front of us reads. But again, if you see the phrase there, like a human being, there's a little letter there that takes you to the bottom of the page, and it tells you that the Aramaic there literally means one like the Son of Man. And you should have lots of memories of the use of that phrase, Son of Man. The most common title in the Gospels that Jesus ever uses to refer to himself is the Son of Man. So here we see this vision of God, and 
a vision of one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. A lot of times in the Hebrew Bible, when God shows up, God shows up on the clouds of heaven. And he comes to the Ancient of Days, and he's presented before him. And then look at verse 14, and this should transport your spirit and transport you to kick Christ the King Sunday because verse 14 says that God, the Ancient of Days, to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So this text would be the text that the people would hear when Jesus continually referred to himself as the Son of Man. Oftentimes in Christian community today, people think that Son of God somehow references the divinity of Jesus and Son of Man somehow references the humanity of Jesus. And we certainly believe Jesus was 100% both. But Son of Man is not really a reference to his humanity except in the sense that he is very much in the status of God in this heavenly image, one who is an agent of God, one who will bring about the kingdom of God here on this earth that has some likeness to a human being. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This is the word of God for us the people of God. So today, on the Christian calendar, is Christ the King Sunday. Globally, we Christians are marking Christ the King Sunday today. Today, on the Christian calendar, we note Christ the King Sunday as being the last Sunday in the Christian year. Next week, we start Advent. We start all over again with the Christian year. But today, we climax the Christian year by celebrating Christ the King Sunday. I'm so glad that I'm part of the historic church that pays attention to the Christian calendar, the liturgical year, because that is so critical and crucial and defining for us in the Christian community. I'm, I'm grateful that keeping the Christian calendar and keeping the Christian calendar preeminent helps us be countercultural. Every time we pay attention to the Christian calendar, as opposed to the secular calendar, the calendar of nations or other nations, every time we pay attention to the Christian calendar, we are doing something very countercultural. We are reminding ourselves and others that we belong to another time, to another place, and hopefully we can hear the echoes of St. Paul who said to us that our citizenship is in heaven. We remind ourselves that we belong to another time, another place, so keeping the Christian calendar helps us to live as a countercultural people. Now, I know, I know that this coming Thursday is Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. I wish we didn't need a day on the calendar to encourage us to live as people of gratitude. I appreciate Thanksgiving. Um, 
We need to put things on our calendar to help us live as the people that we know we should live. But of course, Thanksgiving is an American holiday. Thanksgiving just goes back to 1863, and historically that was yesterday in, in, in human history. I'm grateful for Thanksgiving. We'll be gathering with family on Thanksgiving. I hope you'll be gathering with family on Thanksgiving. We'll celebrate Thanksgiving this coming Wednesday night. We'll have a special Thanksgiving Vespers. But today is Christ the King Sunday. And it is important that we note that today is Christ the King Sunday. The final Sunday in the Christian calendar. And we start all over again. Keeping the Christian calendar. Being a little petulant about keeping time differently from the way the world around us keeps time. Helps us to be countercultural, And does remind us in a powerful way. A consistent way that we belong to another time, to another place. And we even keep the calendar differently than the world around us. Keeping the Christian calendar not only helps us to be countercultural, keeping the Christian calendar helps us to stay Christ-centered. You know the Christian calendar well enough to know that it is the Christian calendar that carries us every year through the life of Jesus Christ. We do start over again next week with the coming of Advent where we remember the prophesied coming of Jesus Christ into human history. And then we will go on through the Christian calendar that will take us through the events of the Christian calendar and the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. And then a year from now we'll climax again with Christ the King Sunday. And we'll remind ourselves that we keep time differently and we know that time and history will climax with the kingship of Christ being extended all over the globe. So the Christian calendar keeps us Christ-centered. Not just Jesus-centered, but Christ-centered. It's important that we are Jesus-Christ-centered. Now, I know that there are people in our culture, particularly our Christian culture, who love Jesus a lot, and I'm very grateful for that. But sometimes their love for Jesus does not get them beyond their love for the human, earthly Jesus and the tremendous teachings of Jesus, particularly his ethical teachings. But we should not just be Jesus-centered. We need to be Jesus-Christ-centered and remind ourselves what the word Christ means. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's been anointed by God to do a special task, to bring about God's kingdom here on this earth. So we focus on the Jesus and the Christ part of who Jesus Christ is. We focus on the nature of Jesus Christ, both as Jesus and as Christ. And we focus on the work of Jesus, not just the work he did those 33 years that he walked Palestine, but the work he's doing now and the work that he's continuing to do and the way he will wrap up human history one day. Years ago, I used to have a bumper sticker on my car. I, I finally repented of it and I took it off because what the bumper sticker said, said was true to a certain extent. It said, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. And that's true to a certain extent. But then the Spirit sort of spoke to me and said, I hope he's so much more than a Jewish carpenter to you. He is Jesus. He is the historical Jesus. He did teach us some important things when he walked the dusty trails of Galilee. But today we also know him as the cosmic king of the universe. So he's so much more than a Jewish carpenter or a Nazarene preacher. 
We know that he is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the special agent of God to bring about God's kingdom in this world, that kingdom that will prevail over all other kingdoms in this world. We know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And all, and all that we know about Jesus, all that we know about who we are, has to come and bow in reverence to this king. There's so many reasons I love preaching from this pulpit in this sanctuary. One of the reasons I love preaching from this pulpit in this sanctuary is as I stand here, particularly as I sit here behind me in worship, right there in the stained glass window up high is a big image of Jesus Christ, King, the encrowned Jesus Christ. So I cannot help but lead worship in this place. I cannot help but preach in this place and be reminded of King Jesus, not just the Jesus that was in the manger, not just the Jesus who was the human teacher who walked the trails of Galilee, but the Jesus who died, was buried, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, rules today, and one day will consummate his work in the coming of the kingdom. My deepest desire for our congregation is that we will be a Jesus Christ-centered congregation. We remind ourselves that for us in the historic church, worship is about King Jesus. We come into this place to bow before King Jesus again, to bow our hearts, our minds, and our lives before King Jesus again. We remind ourselves that as historic Christians, what worship is for us is that we come into this place Sunday after Sunday, perhaps more often, to offer our lives back to King Jesus. Because of who we believe Jesus to be today, it's the most reasonable, rational, intelligent thing we do that we offer our lives to King Jesus. And we come in here every Lord's Day and with reverence, and with a sense of the holiness of God, and with tremendous respect and awe and admiration and adoration, we offer our lives back to King Jesus. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm barely out of the doors of this church before I take my life back and assume control again of my life. And that's why I have to come back again and again and again and give my life to King Jesus. You see that on the altar of this church up here, there is no, no animal sacrifice because we are the sacrifice. The altar is empty because we come to make a living sacrifice before the altar of this church every Lord's Day to King Jesus so that Jesus will use us for Jesus' purposes in heaven. I know I know it's very common, very popular today for worship to be more about entertaining the people than worshiping the king. I know that oftentimes worship becomes more group therapy because of what we need, what we want, what we should do than it is about worshiping King Jesus. But I'm reminded every Lord's Day that as I offer my life as we offer our lives back to King Jesus and worship we meet our highest good we have our deepest needs met in the true adequate appropriate worship of Jesus
Because as we focus on Jesus, since we were created to be a people of worship, our deepest needs are met. But I know in some churches it's about entertainment. It's focused on the people in the pew. It's focused on the people in the pew to see what your needs are and to make sure we meet your needs and to make sure that we remind ourselves how we should live and what we should do. And that's all important, and that will happen in various ways, particularly as we keep clarity about worship. We come into this place with the altar that's central so that we can make a renewed offering of our lives back to King Jesus. This past Friday, we um, marked the 56th anniversary of the deaths of two great men. One of them was John F. Kennedy, who died on November the 22nd, 1963. And the other one was C.S. Lewis, who died on November the 22nd, 1963. A lot of people didn't notice the death of C.S. Lewis because the events in Dallas, Texas, overshadowed the death of C.S. Lewis. They both died the same day in 1963, and according to Walter Hooper, one of the closest friends of C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis actually died the same hour that John Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. So I hope that all of you pause to remember both of those great men, both of those influential men this past Friday, and mark their 56th anniversary of their, their death. You know how influential C.S. Lewis has been in my life and millions of other Christians. But when I think about John Kennedy, one of the things that comes to my mind about John Kennedy is all of the images concerning Camelot that were popular during his presidency. Now, I um, don't want to make you feel old. I don't really remember his presidency. I was two when he was assassinated. But I've learned a lot about the presidency of John F. Kennedy. And that day when he died, and everyone seems to remember exactly where they were that day. I don't. I'm sure I was probably in my playpen or something. But the rest of you probably remember where you were when John Kennedy was assassinated. But we do have all these memories about Camelot. And perhaps it would serve us well to remind ourselves about Camelot. All those stories about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And by the way, C.S. Lewis loved the stories about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And all those myths that taught a lot of great truths like Camelot. Perhaps we need to remind ourselves of Camelot today because here in the United States, we don't know a lot about kings. Our track record with monarchs is not really very good. So perhaps we need to remember Camelot to remind ourselves something about having a king. When I think about Camelot, when I think about King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, I am reminded that those knights pledged their lives to King Arthur. I'm reminded that those knights swore that they would go even to their own death if necessary for King Arthur. I'm even mindful that those knights of the round table had made a blood covenant with King Arthur. Maybe we can remember that and that could remind us something about our king, King Jesus. 
that we have had a blood covenant made for us with our King, King Jesus, and that we come in here Sunday after Sunday to return our lives to King Jesus and to pledge our lives to King Jesus and to say that we will be loyal to you above all else. And if necessary, we will go even to death for the sake of our King. What it means to be Christian now in these days is that we are the ones who today in the here and now bow our hearts and our minds and our lives to King Jesus. We know that there's coming a day when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. We know that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we are the people spiritually intelligent enough to do it now in advance of that day. Let's stand and sing.